Welcome to the third season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. This episode takes us across the stormy waters of the North Atlantic Ocean to the United Kingdom. Harold Shippen was born in 1946 in Nottingham, England. Located 100 miles from London, Nottingham is a city with a population of around 300,000. It is home to the legendary Robin Hood and the Nottingham Castle built over a thousand years ago. In his family of three siblings, Harold was a middle child. In high school, he was athletic, but a bit of a loner. His parents were hardworking class members. He was extremely close to his mother, Vera, and was devastated when she was diagnosed with lung cancer. He watched helplessly as her health deteriorated and was with her when the end was near. The family doctor visited their home and administered his mother morphine to ease her pain. Harold was only 17 when she passed away. In the mid-1960s, Harold was a medical student attending Leeds University. The Guardian reported how, in his first year, while at a bus stop, he spotted a dark-haired beauty, 16-year-old Primrose. Harold was smitten. Even though they were opposites, he was intellectual, she was the daughter of a farmer, and barely literate. She swooned over him and found him to be distinguished, strong, and confident. His smile from ear to ear made her feel special. The two were dating when it happened. Primrose got pregnant. This was completely unacceptable to her parents. The young couple attempted to make it right by getting married. They went on to have four children, but Primrose's parents never forgave her. Four years later, Harold graduated medical school and began working at a medical center in Todd Morden. Harold got off to a rocky start. Being surrounded by drugs and easy access, he began forging prescriptions and taking opioid pain medication and began experiencing blackouts at work. To help her husband, Primrose drove him to his appointments with his patients and waited outside. For six months, Harold injected himself until his veins collapsed. Then he got caught. His colleagues discovered his addiction and he quickly resigned. His license wasn't pulled, but rather he was fined 600 pounds. He attended drug rehabilitation and by 1977 was a practicing general practitioner 
in the city of Hyde. Through it all, Primrose stood by his side. But what she didn't know is that her husband, who had become arrogant, had also developed a sense of superiority over his patients. He had the power to decide when they would die. He began injecting his elderly patients with morphine. It's thought that he may have begun forging prescriptions again or held himself to his patient's medication after their death without reporting it to authorities as required. His patients revered him and thought the good doctor was providing them with the best care possible, which is why it surprised many family members when he showed no sympathy and treated them coldly after their loved ones had passed. Harold continued to practice throughout the 80s, and by 1993 had reached a pinnacle of success when he opened his own office. His patient numbers climbed to 3,000, and the killing continued. There were no statistics kept at the time to track deaths. It's estimated the doctor's death rate was triple the norm. His murder spree went undetected. Harold had settled into a pattern, one in which he felt quite comfortable. Well, almost. John Shaw was a taxi driver for 10 years in Hyde, who often drove elderly patients to their appointments. They would talk during the drive, and over time, many of them became his friends. But then occasionally after he dropped them off, he'd get a call from a relative saying they'd passed away. And he found that odd, because they appeared to be in good health. He sensed a pattern and began asking who their doctor was. And the answer was always the same. Dr. Harold Shipman. In March 1995, when John heard that Netta Ashkoff passed away, his suspicions grew, and his mind reeled. What if he was right? But then again, what if he was wrong? Dr. Shipman was well-respected in the community, and his wife worried what would happen if he spoke up. John could be sued. The BBC reported that he held off reporting Harold to medical authorities or police. He felt they wouldn't believe him. Millicent Garza died a year later in 1996. She, too, was a patient of Harold's. When Millicent's son told John that the doctor had given her an injection, John wanted to tell him, He's murdered your mom but he stayed silent. A year later, in 1997, Maureen Ward was a teacher battling breast cancer, but after treatment, she was one of the lucky ones who went into remission. Maureen was excited at her future and made plans with a friend to go on a Caribbean cruise. But then in February 1998, Harold paid her a visit at her apartment at the care facility. 
a place where people could live independently. But should they need assistance in an emergency, someone called a warden would be there to help. On the morning of February 18th, the warden spoke briefly with Maureen. She was in a good mood and seemed fine. Harold found his way past two locked doors and into Maureen's apartment. He administered a lethal dose of morphine. At 3.30 p.m., he knocked on the warden's door to say he found Maureen dead on her bed. The warden was shocked. How could that be? And commented, I can't believe it. Harold replied, she did have a brain tumor, you know, and that she'd had it for a long time. On the way to Maureen's apartment, she asked the doctor how he got in. He told her Maureen had left the door open. The warden thought that was odd. Maureen had never done that before. Later, when Harold recorded the death, he listed the cause as cancer and that the warden had been present at the time of her death. Then he made notes in Maureen's medical records that she had not been well and backdated them two months prior. No one ordered an autopsy to confirm Harold's diagnosis. Authorities simply accepted his word. Then Harold decided to step it up a notch. He had never killed for profit before, but that was about to change. One of Harold's patients was 81-year-old Kathleen Grundy, an esteemed former mayor. His ego had expanded and his conceit had grown to where he thought no one would think twice if she should happen to die. During one of Kathleen's visits to his office, Harold arranged for two of his patients to witness her signing a document. Later, he took a sheet of paper and used the old brother typewriter in his office to hammer out a will for Kathleen. One in which he was the sole beneficiary of her estate, worth about £386,000 or $650,000. He tapped the keys to write, All my estate, money, and home to my doctor. My family are not in need, and I want to reward him for all the care he has given to me and the people of Hyde. He forged the signatures of Kathleen and the two witnesses and backdated it to June 9th, then sent it to her lawyers with a letter signed by a fictitious Mrs. Smith. On June 23rd, Kathleen visited a friend and mentioned her doctor was visiting the next day to take a blood sample. Harold paid Kathleen a visit and administered a lethal dose of morphine. That same day, her new will arrived at her lawyer's office. On July 1st, Kathleen was laid to rest. Two weeks later, the Manchester Evening News reported 
that her lawyer phoned her daughter, Angela Woodruff, to tell her he'd received her mother's will. Angela knew something wasn't right. Her mother was impeccable, and the will was poorly tight. And leaving everything to her doctor? Well, that was inconceivable. She molded around for over a week, then marched into the police station. Perhaps Harold wasn't aware Kathleen had completed a will 12 years earlier and that a copy had been kept by her lawyers. And perhaps he thought her daughter wouldn't miss her inheritance. Either way, his arrogance and sloppy typing was about to set off the biggest murder investigation in UK history. Police searched Harold's office and found the old typewriter. In August, John, the taxi driver, finally found the courage to contact police. They exhumed Kathleen's body and toxicology tests found fatal levels of morphine. And Harold's fingerprints were found on the forged letter and will. On September 7th, Harold reported to the police station for an interview appearing confident with his lawyer by his side. Investigators eased into questioning by asking him about dangerous drugs he stored at his office. He denied having any. Then they asked him what happened to a patient's drugs when they passed, and he replied that a nurse would destroy them. Then they went in for the clincher and asked him about Kathleen's will. Harold said it had been a complete surprise. Then the investigator sternly told him that the will had been forged and that the Mrs. Smith who signed the letter did not exist. Harold didn't flinch and replied that he had no comment. His behavior was dismissive and rude. The investigator continued to push telling the doctor that they knew the letter in the will had been typed on his typewriter. But then Harold claimed that 81-year-old Kathleen had borrowed it, lugged the heavy typewriter home two or three times. But he couldn't recall the dates Kathleen had supposedly picked up and returned the typewriter. The investigator then told him, you are responsible. You are the author of the letter, and you manufactured the will. You forged the signatures. Harold replied that he did not do it, and suggested that Kathleen had been a drug user and died of an overdose at her own hands. Trying to blame the victim just made police angry. Harold was arrested and charged with Kathleen's murder. Over the next year, 14 more murder charges would be added for his patients' untimely deaths. For Marie West, Irene Turner, Lizzie Adams, Jean Lilly, Ivy Lomez, Muriel Grimshaw, Marie Quinn, Kathleen Wagstaff, Bianca Pomfret, Nora Natal, Pamela Hillier, Maureen Ward, 
Winifred Mellor, and Joan Melia. Dr. Harold Shipman pled not guilty to all of the charges. After his arrest, his wife Primrose stood by him. She moved to a house close to the jail so that she could visit with him. Harold wrote her letters and poetry. He also wrote letters to friends, and when she revealed that the charges against him did not bother him, he never showed an ounce of remorse and even ridiculed his victim's relatives while wallowing in self-pity. Near the end of October 1999, Harold went on trial, and Primrose was there for her husband through all 52 days. She steadfastly believed in his innocence and didn't seem fazed by the evidence. During meal break, she stood in line and attempted to make small talk with the victim's relatives. At 4.30 p.m. on January 31, 2000, the jury reached a verdict. Kathleen Grundy's name was read first. The verdict was guilty. Harold was found guilty on all 15 counts. At his sentencing, the judge told him, In your case, life must mean life. You must spend the remainder of your days in prison. Then he sentenced a serial killer to life in prison to run concurrently. He was also given four years for forgery. His sentencing did not halt the investigation. A year later, a report suggested that up to 236 of Harold's former patients may have been murdered. The oldest was 93, the youngest 47. After his incarceration, Primrose isolated herself and refused to talk to anyone that did not believe in her husband's innocence. And life behind bars wasn't smooth sailing for Harold. Due to his poor behavior, he was punished and lost his privileges. He could no longer wear personal clothing or have a TV in his cell. On January 13, 2004, four years after his sentencing, Harold decided to exact the same fate on himself that he had thrust on his patients, but in a different method. He quietly removed the sheets from his bed and wound them around the bars on the window in his cell, placed his head through the loop, and let go. At 6.20 a.m., prison staff discovered his body and tried to revive him. Harold was pronounced dead at 8.10 a.m. Word spread quickly, and within hours of his death, someone had scrawled the word justice across his former office. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Raymond Euler. He never made it as a firefighter, but had a fascination with fire and the power it held. As his life fell apart and he lost control, 
he turned to arson. Harnessing the Santa Ana winds, he rained fire down on California. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.